Crosspoint family. Welcome to Crosspoint. Thank you for joining us here in person, and thank you all for joining us at home this morning as well for those of you tuning in. My name is Rusty Mackey, and it's a real honor to be able to be here and to preach God's Word to you today. This is my second time getting to preach to you all. Today's a double honor, though, because this is the first time I'm getting to preach as the Director of Men's Ministry here at Crosspoint. My goodness, my family loves this church, and it is really special to be able to serve this church with my gifts in whatever small way that I can. And so thank you all for uh, being here. And today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam and Eve. So I get a really easy passage to preach to you all today. Uh, And I'm titling today's story, uh, today's sermon, A Story of Shame. And before we get into the text and we get into the story of shame that we find here, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you one of my own stories of shame that might cause you to laugh out loud or to cringe really uncomfortably in your seat. And all of those things are appropriate and you have freedom to do any of that. So this happened many, many moons ago, late one night in college. As had become my custom, I would stay up to like two or three in the morning. And then around the time I was ready to go to bed, I would go and take a shower because what else do you do in college other than stay up at late hours of the night and get a shower in the middle of the night and then go to bed? So I'm there in my dormitory and there's all these stalls and I'm getting my shower and I reached up to grab my shampoo because we didn't have, you know, shelves in the shower, heavens forbid, and just like Spartan men's dorm. And I actually knocked it over. No problem. Nobody's awake. I get up and I just walk around into the other shower. I grab my shampoo and I'm coming back. Okay, so to you know, get the scene in mind here, my shower is here. The door to the bathroom is here, the communal bathroom. As I'm going to get into the shower, the door starts to open. So there I am, completely vulnerable, exposed, and everything inside of me is like, quick, get back in the shower. <laughs> so I then pick up my pace to get back into the shower. Unbeknownst to me, when I left the shower, I had left a massive huddle of water. You see where this is going? So I put my foot down. And as I did, everything that happened next happened really, really fast. So my feet slipped out from under me. The door simultaneously opened. I hit my foot on the door, which then made a massive gash in my foot. I go perpendicular to the floor and just bam, flat on my back, completely knocked all of the breath out of me. I hit my head on the tile floor. I'm kind of dizzy. Simultaneously, my hallmate, Jeff, opens the door, finds me on the floor in a puddle and bleeding completely in my birthday suit. He feels really awkward and he's like, oh, oh, goodness, can can I help you? He doesn't want to look, but he wants to help. And I can't say anything because all the breath got knocked out of me. So all I can do is groan. So I just groan, a couple groans. And then he, sa- he again, he says, can I help you? And by that point, I regain some composure. I kind of curl over to my side and I manage to get out. I'm okay. And I crawl back into the shower. I close the curtain and I just laid there for like 10 minutes. And it was just like, oh my gosh. It's okay to laugh, I promise. <laughs> it was so humiliating. It was so humiliating. 
The reason I tell you that story is for a couple reasons. You're like, what are we doing here? (laughs) Number one, we all have our stories of shame, don't we? We all have times that we can recall where we were vulnerable, we felt humiliated, we felt exposed. The second reason I tell you that story is that our stories of shame, they get embedded in our bodies. And so when you think about them or tell them, you experience the same feelings of shame and humiliation back then. Even sharing that just now made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, made me feel a little bit vulnerable. Third reason I tell you this story is our stories of shame, they are not isolated from one another, but they are interdependent. They're interrelational. So when someone shares a story of shame, you might find yourself feeling shame. You might have found yourself cringing a little bit uncomfortable in your seat as I told that story. You might even find some of the details of the story start sparking your own stories of shame. It's really important for us to be aware of this as we jump into the very first story of shame in human history, because Adam and Eve's story is our story. And you might find yourself, as we get into the text, feeling some discomfort, (laughs) remembering some triggering memories. And so if that's you, I just want you to know that I've been praying for you. Take a deep breath if you find yourself getting kind of worked up during this sermon. Ask the Lord to help you. And let's remember that in the same way that God draws near to Adam and Eve in their shame in this story, let's remember that God by his spirit wants to draw near to us this morning in our shame. That's my prayer. That's my hope. So if you would turn with me to Genesis, we're going to read chapter 2, verse 20. Five, all right? If you would please stand with me if you're able and willing for the reading of God's word. And you might say, wait a minute, I think we're in Genesis 3, Rusty. Well, we are, but I want to read the last verse of Genesis 25 or Genesis chapter 2 in order to give you the emotional context and the emotional temperature that we're going to find ourselves in in this story. Hear the word of the Lord. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. Cross point, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we have so many stories of shame. We have so many stories where we have either been sinned against and experienced shame. Oh, we have so many stories where we have sinned and experienced shame. God, would you help us? Would you be near to us? Would you allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing to you in this time, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. So first, we're going to look at the pattern of shame. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Now, you might be wondering why all this talk about shame. This is the story of Adam and Eve's disobedience when they sinned for the first time and thereby sin came into the world for until this day, right? So why are you calling this a story of shame? Isn't it a story of sin? And my answer is yes. This is a story of sin. 
However, I think the author wants us to see that before it's a story of sin, it's actually a story of shame. Where do we see that? Well, we just read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then you kind of move through the conversation with the serpent, with Eve. Fast forward, and if you, don't, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it because we're just going to be in it a lot here today. Fast forward to verse 7 and look at what it says. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. There's that word. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They covered themselves. They hid themselves. This is a hallmark of shame to hide. So the author is purposefully bookending this story with naked and unashamed and naked and ashamed. So I think he wants us to pay attention to the dynamics of shame that are at play that lead to the sin that then leads to more shame. Now, verse one, look at it with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, the snake, said to the woman, let's pause right there. This is weird. Uh, Maybe you've been around the church for a long time. Maybe you've heard this story like a thousand times and we can kind of get numb to it, right? But imagine hearing this for the very first time. This is bizarre a snake is talking. (laughs) It's bizarre for us, and it would have been bizarre for the first century hearers as well. You know, I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about chronological snobbery, where we can uh, look back on previous generations, like, they're so primitive, and we're so progressive. You know, that's that's just foolishness. Like, people back then were smart too. They would have been like, snakes don't talk. (laughs) That's not the way the world works. So this is shocking immediately. And I wish I had all the time in the world to go into the snake, but I just don't. So I'm not. But if you want a resource on it, the Bible Project has wonderful classrooms now, and they actually have a section called the snake in humanity, and they go all into the Hebrew and the cultural context and all the things. I would encourage you to go check it out if you like. My abbreviated Thoughts on this is that this is, as Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 tells us, this is that ancient dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, the Satan, the accuser. Angelic being, fallen from grace, who is tempting, testing Adam and Eve. One more preface. So he's speaking to the woman. I don't have, again, I wish I had a whole hour to talk about this, but I don't. Uh, There have been a lot of really bad interpretations of this throughout church history, where people have looked at the fact that the snake is tempting Eve, and they've concluded that women somehow are less discerning of truth and error than men. They've made it like an equality thing of like men are somehow smarter and more discerning than women. Let's just go ahead and say that's hogwash, right? That's, that's silly. Uh, we saw last week as Pastor Jamie taught that, that the man and the woman, they are equal yet different. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come as well. So there's difference, but there, there's equality here. I think what's happening, there's many ways we could read this, but as Pastor Jamie pointed out last week, the woman is that helper A better translation there would be the deliverer that God sent to save Adam from the problem of being alone and unable to fulfill the commission to take dominion and to rule over all of creation. So there's a tragedy here 
that the snake goes after the woman. It's almost as if if I can take her down, then I can take down the man as well. So let's read this in that light, okay? Let's get into it. Everybody having fun? We're about to have a lot of fun. Okay, so the snake said to the woman, did God actually say? And this, friends, is the beginning of the pattern of shame. I'm going to have up on the screen for you the pattern. We can go ahead and put that up there and leave it up for this whole portion, and we'll see how this works out in this conversation. So did God actually say? The serpent starts with deceit. He starts bringing lies. It's not an overt lie here at the start. It's more of like a, just kind of like twisting the truth, right? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay, interjection here. So either Adam added this phrase when he told Eve what God said, or Eve is adding it here in this moment, but God never said you can't touch it. So she's also now starting to add to God's word. So there's a questioning, kind of a little twisting of God's word. Now there is some additions to it. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So now we're just straight up lying, right? This is like full frontal confrontational deceit saying, God didn't tell you the truth. And then this verse is so important. Look at this with me. Verse five, for God knows. So now we're starting to get into God's intentions. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this deceit, the lie about God and his character, then moves to sowing these seeds of doubt in Eve. Can you really trust him? Is he really good? Is he really for you? Or is he holding back on you? And in this verse as well, we see, if you're wondering, how does this tie to a pattern of shame? This is where shame really kind of is birthed. It comes about. Shame in and of itself, the emotion is kind of neutral. Shame is a felt awareness that we've hit a limit, that we lack something. And so from that place, you can either let that felt awareness of your lack, your inadequacy, that can, that can, in a healthy way, move you towards humility, where you say, God is God and I am not. It's hard to be a human. Amen? I tell my kids that all the time. They're like crying and screaming. I'm like, it's hard to be a human, isn't it, buddy? <laughs> it's hard for me too, right? So humility, it can lead to humility. Healthy shame leads to humility, which then leads to interdependence. We run to God, we run to others and say, I'm inadequate. I have a lack, help me. Think about this. This whole story would have been so different if Eve had said, "Time out, talking snake. I'm going to go find God and find out what he said. And this is what evil does. It gets us talking about God rather than talking to God. This is also what shame does. Shame distorts our perception of reality. 
is God really good? Another way we can phrase that question is, does God really love me? Could God really love me with my inadequacies, my deficiencies? That's the voice of shame. We also see here that the serpent, notice he's pointing to, and this is such a classic tactic of shame, he's pointing to not what Adam and Eve have, but what they don't have. He's emphasizing the lack. Do you see it there? For God knows, verse five, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He's saying you're not like God, you will be like God. Don't you want that? It sounds great, right? Knowing good and evil. So shame can either lead us towards this humility, towards interdependence, or it can become toxic. It can become unhealthy. And all of a sudden, shame isn't something I do. Sometimes for us, you know, sometimes I do shameful things. No, I am my shame. Not, oh, I'm a a human. God is God. I am not. Sometimes I make mistakes. Shame, toxic shame says, no, you are a mistake. And the way God made you, the way you are, is so flawed that you are irredeemable. That doesn't lead to humility, it leads to humiliation. That doesn't lead to interdependence, it leads to independence. To coming to the conclusion that if God isn't for me and he's not going to take care of me, I guess I'm just going to have to take care of myself. And that's what we see in verse six. So we see that there's this deceit, there's this doubt, which then leads to this discontent. Discontent with our relationship with God, discontent with who we are. I'm lacking, I need to make up for that. And then finally, we see this desire gone wild. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, Now let's pause there and just say desire is not wrong. We actually see in this verse an echoing of what we saw in chapter one, where God said all the trees of the garden were good for food. That's what Eve saw here, right? And it says there in chapter one that all of the trees of the garden were pleasant to the eye. Slightly different word, but same idea. So desire isn't bad. (laughs) It's when our desire runs rampant, when it runs wild, when it causes us to run past limits and boundaries. That's what's happening here. And look at what Adam and Eve do. She, Eve, took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam is either there with Eve for the whole conversation or he's here at this very last moment. We're not sure. But the point is the man had an opportunity, much like Eve did, to say, let's stop talking about God and let's go talk to God. They're tested and they fail. And this test repeats again and again and again in scripture, and it repeats again and again and again in our lives. We come to a moment where we are faced with a choice. Will I wait for what God wants to give me? The desire is good, but will I wait for God's timing and his ways, or will I reach out, grasp, and take it in my timing and in my way? 
Crispin Fletcher Lewis has this quote that is just, I think, really helpful in this. He says this, in succumbing to the lie that they need something they already have, they annihilate themselves. And so, after sin, there is nothing for it but death. So, think about that. Shame says you lack and you need to get it for yourself. But this quote here by Crispin Fletcher Lewis is essentially saying, no, they they succumb to the lie that they had to grasp and get what they already have. What's he talking about? Well, the serpent told them, you can be like God, which implies that they're not like God. But remember what God pronounced over them in Genesis chapter one? You are in my image. They were already like God. (laughs) They could eat of the tree of life and live forever, and be like God. They could live in relationship with God and grow in wisdom with him. The thing that the snake puts out, if you eat this fruit, you'll gain wisdom. They could have gained wisdom God's way and the right way with him. And instead of going through the progress with God, they reached out for immediate perfection. They denied the relationship and they grabbed a hold of the created thing. This, my friends, is the pattern of shame. And now let's look at the pain of shame, the results of this, what this brings about in our life. We see this in verses 8 to 13. Before we get into that, though, psychologists call shame the master emotion, which is a pretty epic name for an emotion, right? It's like the one emotion to rule and bind them all. Anybody? Yep. Shaking their heads. And I know. Sorry. Thumbs up. Good job. All right. So yeah, it's, it's like this master emotion. Why do they call it that? Well, for starters, like we've already talked about, shame distorts our perception of God, of ourselves, and as we'll see in a moment, of others. So it shapes our perception of reality. Shame also is the emotion from which all of these other emotions and actions come out. So let's, with that in mind, look at verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you imagine what that was like? Every time I read this, I'm like, what was that like? I wonder what God sounds like when he's walking through the garden. And imagine before the sin, before the shame. In my imagination, I could just sense Adam and Eve being like, oh, God's coming. Oh, we get to spend time with him. Ah, we love it when he comes. But here, if we keep reading, because of their shame, because of their sin, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They rejected relationship with God and the slow formation that comes with that. And instead they took a hold of the fruit, the creation to try to get from created things what they could only get from the creator. And here in their shame, they hide Where? Behind created things, behind the trees of the garden. And don't we do that too? (laughs) In our shame, we hide from ourselves. There are parts of us, there's parts of me, there's parts of you that we don't like, that we're disgusted by, that we think, even if my most closest loved one saw this, they would be disgusted too. And so we repress, we ignore, we hide, we shut the 
closets, shut those parts of ourselves away in the closets of our hearts, we hide those parts of ourselves. We hide from God. (laughs) We have these parts of ourselves that we're like, I mean, I know Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so, right? Like, I know this, but if I'm really intimately honest with God, how will he receive me? So we, like Adam and Eve, keep our distance. We hide from one another in our shame. We put on masks. We put on faces. People say, how are you doing? And we've been walking around feeling the vulnerability of these parts of ourselves, our ashamed parts of ourselves, and we put a smile and we say, I'm great. How are you? We hide behind our personalities. We try to be the smart one, the kind one. We try to be the biblically literate one. We try to be the loving one. We try to be the successful one. We put up all of these fronts. Why? We see in verses nine to 10, look at it with me. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Friends, shame naturally, that master emotion, it leads to fear because we think to ourselves, consciously or subconsciously, if they just see the real me, they're going to reject me. It leads to this imposter syndrome where we're always trying to put our best foot forward and we never feel like we can be truly vulnerable. You know, as a human, one of the the deep, deep needs of every human being that you have ever known or met or ever will know or meet, one of the deep needs is to be known, seen, and loved. And our shame says, if they really know you, if they really see you, they're not going to love you. They're not going to accept you. So hide and put together a more presentable version of yourself. Not only do we see this dynamic of hiding as an outflowing of shame, of being afraid that people will reject us, abandon us, but we also see blame shifting here. Look with me at verse 11 to 13. He said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Oh, that unity didn't last very long, did it? (laughs) But this is like, this is shame. Like, this is what shame does. The, The experience, the felt experience of like, whoo, I am inadequate. I am lacking. The question of, am I loved? Will I be accepted? The weight of that is so heavy that we as people naturally just want to share it. And so Adam says, I'm going to share my shame. Hey God, the woman you gave me is her fault. And guess what? The woman that you made 
right? So he's blaming Eve and he's blaming God. And in the process, he's shaming Eve. Look then at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she follows suit. The shame is too much to bear on her own. So she wants to share it. She says, God, it's that creature's fault. And who made the creature? God did. So she's following the same pattern. If you, if you wouldn't have made this crafty creature, maybe we wouldn't be in this mess. <laughs> Shaming people shame people. Another story of shame from my childhood, I was probably about 11 years old and long story, but we had to cut down a bunch of trees on my parents' property. And I'm out in the yard with my dad and my uncle. And as a young kid, I just sat down on a tree stump, not really thinking that it could just be like filled with sap and it would get all over my blue jeans. And the moment I sat down, my uncle snapped, like he just reacted. And he said, are you stupid boy? You're going to ruin your pants. Now, lo and behold, it was dry and it was fine. And then he kind of awkwardly was like, oh, I guess it's okay. And my dad was kind of awkwardly like, oh, that was, that was harsh, you know? And I'm left there as a young kid, like, whoa, what did I do? Like, I just sat down. But now looking back, <laughs> my uncle shamed me, but guess what? My grandfather was harsh in shaming towards all of his children. And my great-grandfather, he was harsh in shaming towards his children. And my great-great-grandfather was harsh in shaming towards all of his children. Shame begets shame. And shamed people shame people because it's just too much to carry on our own. So if you hear anything today, hear this. Uh, shame is elusive. It's kind of like a shadowy emotion, you know? It likes to hide in the shadows of our heart, and it tells us we have to hide, which means it's hard to pin down in our own lives. But please hear this, cross point. We need to do the hard work of bringing the shamed parts of ourselves into the light of trustworthy relationships so that the gospel can shine on it and heal our shame. Because if we don't, we're just going to keep passing it on to those we love the most. This is so important. <clears throat> the last thing that we see here, the last pain, the last result of shame, is this is the first instance in the Bible of shame over body image. <clears throat> now we're getting real, right? <clears throat> so notice back in verse 7, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. So they grasped for the fruit to try to become like God. And in the process, they immediately had their eyes open and saw that they had a body, which remember, God does not have a body. So in grasping and trying to become like God, their eyes were open to how much unlike God they were. And they're like, oh, what's all this? <laughs> We need to cover this up. And there's immediately a barrier to that naked and unashamed, that vulnerable with one another, the intimacy that they had with each other and with God. There's an immediate barrier. The intimacy was too much. It was too scary. We have to create a buffer here. It's a long quote, 
but I'd like to read it to you. Hang with me. I think it's worth how long it is. This comes from author Hannah Anderson in her book, Humble Roots. If you haven't read anything by Hannah, go buy all of her books today. I'm her representative today. Go buy all of her books and read them because she is a brilliant, brilliant sister in Christ. Wonderful lady. All right. This is what she says, speaking primarily to women. She says, flip open a fashion magazine or scroll through your social media feed and you'll be bombarded with image after image of perfectly sculpted, flawless bodies and the inherent judgment that comes with them. As a result, soon-to-be brides obsess over pre-wedding diets. New mothers stress over getting my body back within weeks of giving birth. And entire industries are dedicated to preventing the natural process of aging. Do you feel it, church? Check out what she says next. Within, I lost my space. We're going to get back, I promise. Within the church, the messages can be just as mixed. Women are simultaneously celebrated for being smoking hot wives. At the same time, they are told that their bodies are a source of temptation, a ticking time bomb that for the love of their brothers, they must defuse. Put away those yoga pants. None of that, right? Man, those are weird times when those conversations come up. Men, so now she's switching to men, men experience shame over their bodies as well. They may believe themselves too short, too thin, too heavy, to have too much body hair, to have not enough facial hair, or to lack muscle tone. Men also receive a confusing message about sexuality. On the one hand, a natural appreciation for beauty becomes equated with lust, resulting in shame for even noticing the attractiveness of a woman or another man. But when age causes a man's sex drive to wane, the same shame tells him to seek out small blue pills to recover his manhood. Is this something that we can talk about in the church? (laughs) The, the deep shame that we have over body image, because it's there and we all have it. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. You know, we're told in Psalm 139 that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Friends, you are not a mistake. And yes, We sin and we experience shame. All people stumble in many ways. We're not saying that we don't do that. But my goodness, you are created in the image of God and you have so much dignity. God loves you. And when you can begin to accept that, then you and I, we become lovely. So let's talk about our shame over our body image and let's remind ourselves that we're created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Let's remind ourselves of our dignity and point each other back to Jesus. All right, speaking of Jesus, we're getting there. Last but not least, third, the presence of God. We see this again in verses eight to 13, but we're gonna look at it from a little bit of a different angle. So if you go back to verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from what? From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So God shows up and they hide. 
Okay, if you're like me, I got some questions. Question number one, where was God during this whole scene? (laughs) I mean, this snake thing is talking to Eve and is just running her through the ringer and Adam's there at some point as well. Where is God? Second question, when God asked the three questions that he asked here, which is, where are you? Who told you? And what have you done? My question is, what is God's tone? What is his presence like? In spiritual formation circles, they'll talk a lot about God images. So God images is a technical term for not just what we think about God, because we all think right thoughts about God, right? God is good. God is love. God is kind. God is compassionate. It's all right here. We think that. God image is getting more at our felt sense of God. What is our experiential sense of what God is like? Now, back in 2012, Baylor University did a massive study, and they determined that 30% of Christians experience God as benevolent, kind, and loving. 30%. You see where this is going, right? They also concluded that 70% of Christians experience God as either distant, angry, or critical. So your kind of natural knee-jerk reaction in terms of your sense of what God is like with you is going to shape how you read those two questions. Where was God and what's his tone? So we can either interpret this fact that God's off and that he then comes back, this kind of ebb and flow of giving Adam and Eve intimacy and independence. We can view that as a benevolent God of love who's like, go enjoy the garden. You know, a lot like with kids, like kids when they're really young, they're like running up to mom and dad and they're like really clingy. But then as they get older, they're like, I want to go explore. And you're like, yeah, go explore, right? And then they run out and something scares them and they like run back to mom and dad and it's like, oh yeah, it's okay, you know? And then they feel safe and they go off and explore some more. There's this ebb and flow of intimacy and independence in that, right? So we could view that in this way. However, if you are part of that 70% who experience God as distant, critical, or angry, you might be like, well, God's gone, he's distant, and he doesn't care. Or you might hear those questions, where are you? Who told you? What have you done? And you might hear that with an angry tone or critical tone. And we just need to step back and recognize that our God images are mostly shaped by our human relationships early in life. So if we lived with a lot of shamed and shaming people who were distant, angry, or critical, we can just impose that onto God. And then we also not only have to step back and realize that, but we have to step towards the scriptures and see who God is. Thinking and remembering how the serpent is sowing seeds of doubt about who God is. (laughs) And we need to remember that God is love. So here's what I want you to hear and see from this. Adam and Eve experience this shame. They butt up against their own limits. They then go down a toxic route of shame. And in their own independence, rejecting God, they grab the fruit and then shame fully takes form and they hide. And what does God do? What does God do? He draws near. 
God goes to them. Not only does he go to them, but then he starts asking questions. You know, God doesn't have a knowledge gap here. It's not like he's like, oh, I lost Adam. Can't see him. Where are you, man? You know, there's not a knowledge gap here. He asks questions in order to draw them out of their shame. He draws near to them and then he draws them out of his out of their shame. He's pursuing intimacy still after they've rejected him. Uh, my 10-year-old son, he, from time to time, he'll get a little overtired, overstimulated, and he'll just kind of daze. You know, we'll be sitting at the table and he'll just kind of like start staring off into nothingness. Anybody know anybody who does that? Yep. Some are self-proclaiming that they do that, right? And I'll say, hey, bud, where are you? Hey, hey, where'd you go? And that's not like a, come on, man. Like, we're talking. Like, jump in the conversation. Be a contributing family member. That's not what I'm at. That's not what I'm saying to him. No, I'm saying, hey, we value your presence. Like, come back to us come back, you know, come talk to us, join the conversation because we want to be close. So friends, I just want to put before you that as God is coming to Adam and Eve, allow the truth that we know about God to form how we read this, that that God's saying to Adam and Eve, where are you? Who told you? What did you do? Oh, it was so, it was so good. So good. Why'd you leave? Come back. And I encourage you, friends, that as you go throughout your day and you start to notice more and more shame, I think this passage is actually inviting us to reckon with our shame a little bit more. As you begin to notice that more and more, your own temptation to hide, your own tendency to feel afraid of intimacy. I want to invite you to just stop in that moment and take a deep breath and imagine God saying to you, where are you? Where are you? And be honest with him. Tell him where you're at, not geographically, but internally, right? We're talking about the internal landscape of the soul here. Be honest with him. And as you're feeling that shame or that fear, hear God asking you, who told you? And start thinking, okay, whose voices am I listening to right now? Am I listening to the voice of culture? Am I listening to uh, an old family member who shamed me so much that I've internalized and I just hear their voice in my head? Am I listening to myself? Am I telling myself lies? Am I listening to the lies of the evil one? Or am I listening to the voice of Jesus? Because friends, uh, Doug said it earlier, Jesus never shames you. (laughs) So if you're interacting with Jesus in prayer and you feel shame, that ain't Jesus. It's not. It's something else. It's some other voice. So we have to discern those voices. And if you find yourself in a space where out of your shame, you're you're feeling just this pull to act out or do something that's not in God's timing and not in God's ways. Just hear the Lord asking you, what will you do? (laughs) Knowing that he's inviting you not to run away in in independence, but to run towards him in interdependence. 
If you find that you have sinned and you're wallowing in shame, I want you to hear in that, what did you do to hear the Lord inviting you to come back to him, to ask for forgiveness and to experience restoration? Friends, as we wrap up here today, I want to tell you one last story of shame. And that is about 2,000 years ago, God himself, who is not ashamed of us, was happy to take on human flesh. He took on a body like ours, and he lived a life that was so perfect They were every single person failed the test of waiting on God to give what God wants in his timing. Jesus, not in a garden filled with plenty, but in a desert filled with absence. Jesus stared down that ancient serpent in the eyes and he said, no, I will wait on the Lord. And he waited And even the night before his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there and he is pleading with his father, would you please let this cup pass? But what does he pray? Again, he passes the test and he says, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is accused unlawfully. Jesus is stripped He's beaten. They place a robe and a crown of thorns on his head and he is publicly mocked and humiliated. He is shamed by those who carry a burden of shame that's too great to carry. And after that humiliating experience to make it even worse, they strip him down. He carries a cross and he is nailed to it. And in that day and age, people would have been nailed to the cross naked. There's your savior, naked and ashamed. And as we know from the scriptures, Jesus died and he took sin to the grave. But we also learn from Hebrews 12 too, that Jesus endured that cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him. So yes, your sin died with Jesus at the cross, but your shame died there too. And now for all who put their faith in Jesus, we are no longer naked and ashamed, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. All of the self-disgust that we could feel for ourselves, Jesus has traded it for the dignity of royal robes and garments. And you, Crosspoint, your sons and daughters of the king. May we be the kind of people who don't live from the self-disgust of our shame, but we live from the dignity of being the royalty that God has made us. Pray with me. God, you are kind beyond our comprehension. Lord, you come to us in our shame. And when we feel our shame, you're inviting us, Lord. You're inviting us to come back to you. God, I just pray, and I really pray for us that you would break the bondage of shame in our lives and that you would just move us to a place of 
really settling deep in our soul that you are good and you are for us. And would that empower us that even when we do shameful things, even when others shame us, that we would just run to you, knowing that you run to us as well. Lord, help us as we go and continue to process this passage and these deep and painful topics. And I pray that you would even give us other folks from Cross Point who are safe that we can process this with as well. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.